Hello everybody, I'm Cinzia. Welcome to another episode of Stories of Climate Justice. Indeed, when we look at the world we live in, and we look at the conflicts and the wars that we fight as we speak, whether they are conflicts in a small way in my country back home, or big conflicts such as we find in the Congo, in Darfur, in many other parts of the world, if you look at them and remove the superficial layers of religion and politics, quite often it's a question of trying to access resources, trying to control those resources, and trying to decide how those resources will be shared. Unfortunately for us, when we leave some people out, when some people feel marginalized, when some people feel like they don't belong, when some people feel like they are not recognized, their voice is not listened to, sooner or later they seek justice. And sometimes they seek justice in a way that precipitates a crisis and a war. And so, because we live in a, on a planet where resources are limited, we must learn to share them, we must learn to manage them, we must learn to live in a system that allows for the greatest space, which for lack of a better word, we'll call democratic space. You just heard the voice of Wangari Matai on a speech that she gave in 2006. She's considered one of the first environmentalists in history, a woman from Kenya, that did a simple yet powerful thing like planting trees as a mean to not only solve climate change issues, but also solve conflicts between Kenyans. She's really a woman that inspires me a lot. And it was just great to have the chance to talk about her with Stella. If you have the chance, go read her memoir. It's called Unbowed. And I leave a link in the show notes so, so you can find it. And also, if you missed the first part of my conversation with Stella and Burambao, go check it out because it's the previous episode. In this episode, we talked about the burden that climate change is having on women on top of the other numerous issues that they are already facing. We also talked about the communication gap when it comes to climate change topics in Kenya and in Africa in general. And I want here to clarify a detail because you'll hear me very surprised, having a surprise reaction when Stella referred to Swahili and Kikuyu as vernacular languages. I must say I'm probably biased on this topic and I also have no expertise on this. So let's be clear about that. But my intent when, when I stopped her was not to correct her, of course, but rather point out how colonialism still influences everyday life of African people. Because at my ears, vernacular means not just local language, but also a language of lower prestige than English in this case. So when it comes to reaching farmers in rural areas so that they can implement some resilient measures against climate change, 
English is another barrier because it is reachable only by highly educated people. And you will hear Stella explaining exactly that. All right, like always, if you like the episode, share it with some friends. I leave you to the second part of my conversation with Stella. I want to ask you this, Stella. You mentioned your grandma and your auntie while you were talking about the effects uh, of climate change to the, to the farmers. Do you think that women are especially affected by the consequences of climate change in Africa? Yeah. Um, I think it's, I don't know if this is cultural or global, but, you know, women are left to take care of the children. Yeah. So if you have to do the farming, because um, they don't have much uh, assets or money. So when we're talking about farming as a economic activity, it means everyone's going to the farm, sometimes even with the kids. Um, yeah, so that means the, the woman has to take care of the children, go to the farm. Uh, it's a lot of things happening at the same time. I feel that that's too much um, already. But in central Kenya, for example, there's a very high level of alcoholism, um, which in men, mostly. There's also a lot of drinking from women, but it's mostly men. Um, uh, yeah, that, that makes it... So women have to be the breadwinners. They become the breadwinners. Um, so that means now all of the farming that you need to do to take the children to school for them to eat every day, that is on you. And you're taking care of them at the same time. It's, it's, it's a bit too much even to think about. Um, because usually what it is, it's you go and do the farming and all of that. And then you have to go take whatever you harvest to the market. Um, it feels like physical labor that men would, could help with or could be really good at. But um, yeah, when you have that on top of taking care of the children, I feel it becomes really heavy. And like I said, in central Kenya, um, with men now going astray, drinking is a really bad habit, mostly in central Kenya. Alcoholism um, there is actually in their world, is among the worst. And I don't know why. Some people have tried to, to connect it to colonialism and colonial times. Like maybe it's the trauma that since those days, but it's really, uh, it's really bad. Um, yeah, so women have to pick up the slack and know that, well, for a really long time, until very recently, um, Only the boy child or the man inherited from their parents. So this is land is the most important asset for these communities because they're farmers. So if the man is the one who's inheriting the land, you get married to the man. The only access you have to land is through your husband. So if he's the one drinking and things get you know, difficult at home, 
most of these women leave, but you see now they don't have a home. Going back to their parents is usually, you don't see that happening a lot where people who've been married go back to their parents. It happens sometimes, but not often. Um, so these, these women are really dependent on these men and on their parents. That's the only access they have to land. They don't have the money to buy land, yeah. So if you're walking away with your children and it, it, so you find that even in the village around the towns, slums are starting to come up. And this is how you find these women end up there. It's not no fault of their own. They haven't done anything wrong. Um, yeah, and obviously some of the drunkards find their way there. So is slowly you start to have an issue. You have women um, in place, places where they don't need to be. So I feel like, yeah, it's, it's, it can be quite the burden. And you know, now when, when they're in slums, that's a whole nother problem. It's not the right environment for anyone, for women, for children. Yeah, so it's... Um, it can get really, really dark. The problem can get really dark. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems that they already have a situation of disadvantage for many reasons. And if you think about the consequences of climate change, so the, the droughts and, and the floods, uh, like this is just increasing their level of um, vulnerability. vulnerability, right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to the aspect of, of awareness that we were talking about earlier. One of my idols, I would say, it's uh, Wangari Matai. She was an environmentalist already in the 70s, really a pioneer from Kenya. She was planting trees in the 70s, trying already to reduce the effects of, of climate change and droughts in the in the country and she won the Nobel Prize. She's really a great woman and I read a few months ago her memoir and I think it's a beautiful book. I really think that everybody should read it. It's very authentic, her story and, and really beautiful. Um, but yeah, so from my, from my naive perspective, I thought that Kenya was somehow in the front line with this issue, or at least a little bit more um, advanced or progressive, I don't know how to say that, than other uh, African countries. But from the from the from your perspective, it doesn't seem so. Um, why, why do you think is that? Yeah, so let's just start with Wangari first. <laughs> yes, she was amazing. She was amazing. Um, and she knew the she had a very keen interest in women and the youth. Um, uh, I think I've told this story before, but my dad was part of this thing that they called in back in the village. It's called the Kaharo University Students Association, just KUSA. So he was part of KUSA. He was uh, well, is this young guys who find themselves in leadership all the time? So I think people liked him, I don't know, or he was outgoing. Um, but when Wangari Mathai used to take trees to the village, because that's how she, she actually 
bought trees, took them to the village. So she used these young people to distribute the trees. Um, so yeah, my dad was one of those people. I think we have Wangari Matai trees at my grandma's. <laughs> yeah, so she, she understood that for there to be peace, you know, she was also a leader for a really long time. So she understood for that to be peace, no conflict, we need to be able to manage our environmental resources so that everybody has access to food, has access to water, and that's how you find peace in a country. She was, she was very focused um, and uh, very sort of enlightened. She understood quite a lot more than we did. Um, yeah, even some of us right now. Um, yeah, so the thing uh, with our leadership, the level of education in Kenya is very high. My mom was trying to explain to me that's why we have uh, such a high rate of unemployment. Everybody is so very well educated. Everybody has papers. Everybody is going for a master's. Everybody is so educated. There's not enough jobs for all of these people. So compared to Kenya, I mean, Uganda and our neighbors and Tanzania, we have a really high rate of unemployment. So what I'm trying to say is we do have some of these people who are educated, who have access to this information, like to do with the environment. Her background was very much into these biological sciences and, and the environment was therefore she understood it. Um, so she was able to interpret and translate a lot of things with regard to the environment and the society as a whole. Um, we have a few of these people who are, you know, well-educated geniuses. We, we, we have, like you said, that you thought Kenya was um, ahead with regard to these issues. I would say so. Like I said, even our documents, when you read, our um, anything legislative that Kenya comes up with, our constitution. I think I had someone, it was the most well-researched, articulated globally. I'm not sure about that, but I had someone say that. So when it comes to anything to do with, you know, that intellect, you can find it here, yeah. The, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is we have these people who are usually, um, it's a handful of people who have access to this information. Very few of them are translating it or um, bringing it to everybody else. So that it's, it's, I don't think it's an issue that's specific to Kenya. I think it's an African issue. We have information gaps and communication gaps has to do with phones. So people in the village, most of them um, don't have smart devices. Uh, just recently I've learned that they are, most of them have devices now, but not smart. So um, their access to information is, there's a, some gap. And then with, uh, if you want to reach them, um, it has to be through vernacular TV or vernacular radio. And 
not many people are talking about climate change in vernacular languages. So again, that brings another gap. So I think, and it's, it's an African issue. So um, in Kenya, I think it becomes more pronounced because the more educated you are means you speak a lot of English and that's, you know, even like you go to the universities where people do all of these research. It's not in vernacular. That adds to the gap. Can I, can I just say something, jump in and say something? It sounds, it's very funny to hear that, that you're referring to vernacular language like your language, your real original language, and the colonial language, which is English, is considered the, the official one. Is is what you what you what you mean? Yeah, that's true. Um, our national languages are Swahili and English, uh, but the more you start working with people in offices, official settings, people just immediately switch to English. So, yeah, less and less of, for example, I am Kikuyu. So less and less of Kikuyu, you leave that to you talking to your grandma or your auntie. Yeah, even at home, people in Nairobi, not many people are speaking in the native languages. And yeah, so it's more and more English, the more educated you are. So you see the distance when you said, when you said about, you know, Wangari and how come we have this really big distance. Um, It's because th th there are things and layers, as you said, that are putting us um, apart from each other. So there's, you can find people who, we have the UN here, UNEP and yeah, it's based here. So there's people who are, you know, the mind space of this conversation, that's where they live. And then again, you go to the village, there's, it's not getting through. So, yeah. How do we solve this issue? <sighs> I think, you know what? <laughs> Back to Wangari Masai, she was a, she's a perfect example. Because, first of all, she used to speak to people. She goes to the village and she, she, she will talk to people in Kikuyu. You know, like often, our, our president does that as well. But, you know, it's, we've had tribal politics for a really long time. So I think people try to move away from vernacular languages uh, because there can be political tensions. Um, but, you know, when they go to the village, that's how you connect with people there. Uh, but the thing with Wangari is whatever she said, whatever her leadership was, she, she involved the youth. If she's talking about trees, She's taking the trees to the village. She's walking her talk. Yeah, I think that's the difference. We don't have much of that anymore. She was leading by example. She was leading by example. And she, she came early on. I don't know why people are not following the example. <laughs> yeah. I was working before I went to do my doctorate. I was working for a, a green a sustainability company for construction. So that is to do with lead and green star rating. But I, I wasn't settled. I think it's like you told me in your previous job, you feel like there's something else 
I am not feeling this. I went and did my doctorate and um, that's why I met with climate resilience for the first time. And it made sense to me in the context of, you know, Africa is the most vulnerable. So the priority should be to reduce this vulnerability. So I, I started to get involved in this, uh, reading it, trying to find out how you could really um, do anything with it about it. And I wanted to connect it to my background in construction so that, you know, I'm not losing all of my education just because, yeah. So climate resilience uh, means adaptation. Adaptation is really infrastructure. And now that's why it makes sense to me when you talk about building a dam or building um, a flood wall or a sea wall, the conversation starts to make sense to me. So that's what law by, that's how it started. Um, I, I just pointed out, I, I wrote down a few things that was serious and I wanted to work on. So that's low carbon, um, zero waste, um, climate resilience and awareness. For me, climate resilience and awareness is the highlight. That's where most of the, what I would say, where I want to really uh, involve myself. That's where the need is. So yeah, that's Loga is really, um, if we're talking about like floods, so that's going into the actual adaptation and technical ways to solve it. Um, if we're talking about droughts as well, there's a way to, to deal with that using infrastructure. Can use check dams to make sure um, as the water is flowing, it's flowing slower so that you give it time to infiltrate into the soil. Um, yeah, and uh, so with low carbon and zero waste, that is also more like a, it's saying that they're not the priority, but they're also important. It's sort of like a, an awareness type of awareness creation or educating people. Um, yeah, which is, I think we have, we had a, we did, a, we have a ban on plastics, which is great, but um, I don't, you know, if people don't understand why there was a ban on plastic, then they end up importing plastics from neighboring Uganda. You find plastics here, but they are banned. So people need to understand why these things are actually happening. It's for their own good, for the environment, um, so that they don't use it, even if they, they're given for free, you know? Um, yeah, so Loba is, I think right now, mostly to do with awareness. We're creating awareness on social media, mostly, which uh, I find is not very effective. Uh, like I said, if you're trying to reach the most vulnerable people who actually need the awareness, um, it would have to be using vernacular languages and it would have to be um, on radio, I think. Radio and TV are the most uh, effective 
Um, and right now we're doing social media, which they are not connected to social media. So it's just, we're learning as we go along. So maybe we'll find a way to get into the radio. Uh, yeah. Um, I think in a nutshell, that's it. <laughs> I always try to finish the podcast or the episode talking about activism and trying to leave a kind of call for action um, to people. I just would like to, to, to understand your perspective on it, like your perspective on what is activism for climate change in Africa and at, at least what do you think about it and, and how can we involve more people in the movement? Um, I think activism in Africa is, um, when I just got involved, which is uh, not last year, it's now the other year. Late, okay, so I've been around for about a year and a couple of months. So in that time, I can tell you that the activists who are mostly the youth, they have such a wealth of knowledge. It's, I, I'm learning every time I see a post, I see someone um, talking about the Okavango Delta. Every time someone is doing a campaign, I'm learning a lot. So activism, you know, in Africa, that mm, activism is not, uh, I don't know, people have a bad attitude towards it. And um, in Kenya, for example, in Nairobi, when people do that kind of like demonstrating and showing up with placards, immediately people start to have a feeling of dread because you know that the police are going to show up and it might get violent. So it has a really bad uh, connotation. Um, and the other thing is people take advantage of, like you see other people demonstrating uh, they take advantage of that to go and um, break into stores and steal stuff. So even the people who are doing the, you know, organizing such actions, sometimes you feel like you don't want to when you know what the results could be. So there's a lot of um, negativity towards it. Um, yeah, which is why maybe you see just, one person showing up with a placard, you know, they, it's just one person, they couldn't do much damage and they're not moving, they're just standing there. And that might be more effective than people showing up in numbers, yeah. Um, yeah, so the, how we see activism in Africa for good reason is not very good. Um, we don't see it in good light. And I think there's a reason why um, but also my thoughts are that we need it. Um, very many times, like in Kenya, there's a time that the Ministry of Tourism was planning a project inside the Nairobi National Park. So, you know, they will market it as something that is green, is going to be sustainable, it's going to be, you know, coexist with whatever natural is happening there. But then the activists pick it up and you start to see um, this, this is just, you're trying to kill the park because um, 
as soon as you start building inside there, you're taking space from nature and we keep doing it. Uh, in the 1960s, Nairobi National Park was, it was huge. I don't remember the numbers, but if you go back to it, it was huge. The population of animals, thousands. Right now, it's scaled down to tens of hundreds, if you're lucky. Um, yeah, leopards have gone down to like about 10. It's, it's a disgrace. So it's already shrunk and someone is thinking to build something inside the park. Yeah, so people are very greedy for land um, and for tourism, the more pristine, the more natural it is, that's where they want to take the project so that tourists can come and see our nature. But that, you know, that's already a mistake. That's not how to do it. Um, these are places that we should be staying out of and protecting. Um, yeah, so for me, activism, I don't think we can do without it. It's very important. It's very important that people continue to make leadership feel like they need to be accountable. They need to think before they do something. And um, when they're communicating it also, that they need to be telling the truth. Yeah, so activism makes sure that that is happening. And when it doesn't, obviously they call them out. Yeah, and I think that we need that. Wow, yeah, I want to finish with these words that you just said, because I think they're beautiful. I, I don't know, I could stay here and talk with you for other <laughs> <laughs> three, four hours. <laughs> Maybe we should do another oh, no. <laughs> There's so much to say and, and yeah. so much to unpack. Let's say that we could eventually make an episode two one day. Yeah. yeah. Do you agree on that? Why not? Yeah. I would cool. like that. Perfect. Yeah. Well, really, thank you. Thank you so much. It's, um, it, it has been... It's it, it, it was amazing. Really amazing conversation that I had with you. Yeah, thank you for having me.